That's why we give you the honor, the glory, the praise, the adoration. That's why we magnify your name. That's why we exalt you. Because we recognize that indeed it's all about you. And so we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your presence in our midst. We bless those that are watching or listening through the various devices. Speak into their lives. Minister by the power of your spirit. Cause your word to accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it. We bless you and we honor you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to this service at World Outreach Church for All Nations, coming to you from Lawrenceville, Georgia, where we are still maintaining social distancing and all the other health guidelines. Uh, we are a ministry that builds strong families while serving global communities. And so this morning, I'm going to continue in the message that I've begun now for several weeks, race, relations, and reconciliation. And last Sunday, I spoke about the fact that righteousness and justice met at the cross. In other words, if you're walking fully in righteousness, justice is a foregone conclusion. You're not only righteous with God, but you are also seeking justice. Glory to God. But this morning, I'm going to move further in that, in, in that, in that series. And for today, I want to use the subject or the title, Time for Reawakening. Time for Reawakening. And I'm going to go to Judges chapter 2, beginning from verses 8 through 12. Judges chapter 2, beginning from verses 8 through 12. And let me just say again, as I've always said, since the beginning of this series. We are not going to get to the conclusion of this matter in one message or in a couple of messages. This is a marathon. And as such, we are trusting God that each message will build on the previous one and give us a little more light, a little more understanding, a little more clarity as to what needs to take place so that we can live in a peaceable world glorifying the name of the Lord God. Judges chapter 2, I'm going to start again from verse 8. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Herez in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Cash. Now, Let's pay very careful attention from verse 10 on to 12. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Woe! That calls for a pause moment. Joshua, you will recall, was the one that God used after the death of Moses to bring Israel into the promised land. Won many battles miraculously and got them to the land. 
Here in Judges chapter 2, the Bible is telling us that when Joshua died, and the elders that lived about the same time with him, when they died, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Shall I say to you right now, this moment, that America, the Western civilization, is one generation away from being becoming pagan. Let us sink in. We are one generation removed in the entire Western civilization from becoming pagans. Very, very sobering thought. Now, while we keep our place in Judges chapter 2, if you remember the seven churches of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, I'm not going to go there, I'm just going to say this in passing. The seven churches that were mentioned, Ephesus, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamos, and on and on and on, seven churches that were active. In fact, Ephesus was the church that church planted, I mean, rather, Paul planted, and that, as far as we know in the New Testament, was the most spiritual church of the entire New Testament. Do you not know that all of those seven churches are now in the present-day Turkey? That we will categorize today as unreached people groups. How does that happen? How can a church that Paul, the apostle, planted and wrote to us through that church at Ephesus? And we understand that this church was one of the most solid, the most spiritual church of that time. And now, you'll be hard-pressed to find any semblance of Christianity in the same place. How did that happen? It happened because of what we read in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. There arose another generation who did not know the Lord. When you look at the UK today, uh, years ago when, when my wife and I first started going there, the United Kingdom was in such a state of apathy that they were selling church buildings to mosques and turning them also to pubs, as they call it there, nightclubs. Church buildings. Now, this was the same United Kingdom that brought the gospel to us in Africa and many other parts of the world. But thank God, in due time, God began to send African missionaries, church planters, Caribbean missionaries, and church planters. Those who haven't received that grace from the British now took it back. And now, England is in a better position. But I'm saying that to say, what can happen when a generation arises after us who do not know the Lord. We are one generation away from becoming pagan. Judges 2 verse 11. What happens when that happens? Judges chapter 2 verse 11. Then, then when? After there arose a new generation that does not know the Lord, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals or Baals, depending on how you want to call it. 
And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Let me, let me just take my time because I'm talking about time for reawakening. Let me tell us how Israel speaks to us today because some people say, well, this was, this was Israel. What does that have to do with the church or the world in which we live in? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7 that Israel of the Old Testament was that church in the wilderness. So everything God was doing with Israel was pointing to the future when the church of Jesus Christ will be here. And therefore teaching us through Israel what the church ought to be doing. And how the church ought to relate to God. And how the church ought to relate to its neighbors. Or how the church ought to relate to itself. So Israel of the old is a type of the church in the new. You can see that in Acts chapter 7. Secondly, what is so critically important about God's dealing with Israel, there's a very obscure scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Deuteronomy verse, chapter 32, verse 8. This is what the scripture says. Let me go there very quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. I'm just trying to show us the relevance of Israel to where we are. The scripture says, when the Most High, that is God, divided their inheritance to the nations, when he, God, separated the sons of Adam, he said the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Oh my goodness. In other words, when God was making nations and giving boundaries to nations, he did that with Israel in mind. In other words, no nation was going to be greater than what Israel could handle. God allowed nations to exist in direct proportion to how Israel was growing. Why? Because Israel, or the church as we know it, will become the factor through which the nations will be groomed and nurtured and brought into relationship with God. Now, time for reawakening. What am I after this morning? Let's go to Judges chapter 6, verse 13. So we've seen that when a generation arises that do not know God, they begin to serve Baal and worship the gods of the surrounding where they are. Now, today we don't serve Baal, we don't have graven images, but we have a lot of images. So we don't have shrines, but we have our own self-made gods, G-O-D-S. What is that God? Anything that you and I esteem and revere higher than who God is, is a God. Anything that competes in my heart for the love and affection and devotion to the 
holy God, anything whatsoever becomes a God. It could be my car, it could be my family, it could be my intellect, it could be my education, it could be my money, anything at all that we care much more for than for God has become a God. So in Judges chapter 6, in verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now this is Gideon. In verse 13, Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. So Gideon, who was not part of Joshua's generation, who is not seeing any presence of God, is not seeing any signs and wonders, is not seeing anything tangible to show that God was still with them. When the angel of God came to him and encouraged him, he said, wait a minute, who is this God? All the miracles our fathers talked about. It's just history. We are not seeing anything. Nothing is happening. Where is this God? Why has he forsaken us? Now, I'm saying this to say, we are in a very pivotal, critical moment. Critical and pivotal in the sense that we need a massive revival. We need a massive reawakening because we have generations around us who are disconnected from what you and I believe. And it's not so much their fault that they are in this place. And I'm going to address this in another message or two to come. They are not seeing the presence of God. They are not seeing the righteousness of God displayed. They are not seeing the love of God displayed. And may I say to you, this younger generation in particular, they are looking for authenticity, not just your theory. I cannot tell you how many young people have come to me and said, I will not get married. And when you talk to them a little further, you find out the reason they are saying that is because they're saying, if what I'm seeing with my parents is what marriage is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. So there's a disconnection between the message we preach and the life we live. And for this younger generation, they're not going to have any of that. They want authenticity. And therefore, if they don't see it at home, they don't see it at work, they don't see it at school, they begin to allow the culture that surrounds us to seep in and develop their culture. When there is no presence of God, it's easy for us to yield to the corrupting influences that's all around us. In fact, the book of Judges is a story of up and down and up and down of the life of the people of Israel. In fact, the last verse of Judges, Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says that there was no king in Israel in those days. 
And therefore, everyone did what was right in our own eyes. No king. Remember last week we mentioned Isaiah 33 verse 22. The Lord is a, a judge. The Lord is a lawgiver. Um, law the Lord is our king. He will save us. When we allow God to be the judge and the lawgiver and the king, he says, I will save you. But when there's no king in Israel, in other words, when there's no presence of God, everyone does what's good in their own eyes. So everyone comes up with their own truth. Truth for our time, for this generation, is no longer absolute. It's relative. Just make it up as you go along. If it feels good, it must be true. No, 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 no. That's not what the word of God says. There is a clear difference between going to church and being a follower of Christ. We should not be content to having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I want to just encourage my younger people. I fully believe that the future belongs to you. It is our role to groom you, to encourage you, to nurture you for the future that's waiting for you. You are the ones, like Joshua of old, that will get us into our promised land. But in order for that to happen, you must arise and seize the moment, not by might, not by power, definitely not by your intellect, but by the Spirit of God. Joseph, David, Daniel, and Esther were all young people. And God used them, incredibly so, to change the trajectory of what was happening in that time. So I have a lot of confidence in our young people. Uh, the times are rough right now. Many of you are confused. You're trying to find yourself. You're trying to find what is authentic. And I pray by the power of the living God. That the more you seek God, the more you look for God, you will find him. Because it's not far from you in Jesus' name. So our reawakening will take place as you and I become like the sons of Issachar. Who had understanding of the times and what Israel ought to do. The solution we are looking for as we are trying to find an answer for this race relations and reconciliation in our time. This solution cannot be attained through our roundtable discussions, but by systematic Bible teaching. And that's why these teachings, this series I'm bringing to you, is taking weeks to complete. You must understand that the Bible is the only source of racial reconciliation. Yes, the government will play its part. Yes, our families have its role. But there is no law that would change the heart of man. It is Jesus plus nothing. <laughs> you need to be convinced that the Bible is the word of God. And therefore, the final arbiter in matters of all human relationships. Let me go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 19 through 21. Time for reawakening. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. 
Thank you all. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Did you hear that? We do heed. We, we, do, rather, we do well to heed to the word of God because it is a light that shines in a dark place. <laughs> Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, verse 20. Knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who, who spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. In other words, I'm trying to establish to you the inerrancy of scriptures. I'm trying to establish with that the word of God, the Bible, is the absolute, complete truth of the word of God. There's no truth anywhere else other than this book we call the Holy Scriptures. It is it. Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. We need to stop looking for truth anywhere else. There is nothing that's happening in our time or will happen in the future that God has not covered. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. But know this, no, I'm okay, and that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. Now watch this now. All Scripture, not just portions of it, not just parts of it. Not the selective scriptures we choose. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Whoa, 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 let me just hold right there. Last week we talked about righteousness meeting justice at the cross. Now we have been told, if you want to know how to live righteously, if you want to know how to bring forth the fruit of righteousness, the result that righteousness produces, the Bible is telling you and I, it is given through all the scriptures that God has given us. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In other words, instruction in rightly living. Verse 17. Why? Why does God give us this instruction in righteousness? That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete apart from the scriptures. I don't care how many other sociology books you're reading. You're reading. It does not matter how many years of college you have. If you don't have the scripture, you are incomplete. That the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I thank God for what's happening. The peaceful protest, the crime, and the uh, attention to get the things that are wrong, to get it right. I think it's a good thing. But I just want to remind you, if you're going to do any good work, you have to be equipped. If you're going to be equipped, you have to be complete. And in order for you to be complete, you must embrace the scriptures. This is the compass 
for any good work. Running around, shouting, crying, will not get it done. It will be short-lived, except you are grounded in the scriptures. Now, now, the inerrancy of scriptures, and my time is running so fast, I need to move very quickly. Let me, let me, let me, let me share a few things with you. To show you how complete and inerrant and infallible this, this Bible is. A thousand years before Jesus came. One thousand. One thousand years before he came. Men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit to post prophetic signposts that will point to him as the Messiah. Okay, let me say that again. A thousand years before he ever came, before he was born through Mary. One thousand years. God gave various men in the scriptures prophetic signposts that will point to Jesus as Messiah. A thousand years before he came. Now, I'm going to show you now eight of these prophetic samples. It should be on your screen. Eight prophecies that was given about Jesus before he arrived. Number one, go to it for me. In Psalms 22, verse 16, David prophesied that the Messiah's hands will be pierced. It was fulfilled in John chapter 20, verse 25, and verse 27. Years before he came. Number two. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, Isaiah prophesied that he would not open his mouth to defend himself when tried on false charges. It was fulfilled in Matthew 26, verse 63. hey, <laughs> hey. Number three, in Isaiah 53, verse 9, Isaiah prophesied that he will ultimately be buried in a rich man's tomb. It was fulfilled in Matthew 27, verses 57 to 60. Number four, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah prophesied that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. Come on, guys. Here is the fulfillment in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Number 5, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah prophesied that he, Jesus, will ride into the holy city on a donkey. <laughs> fulfillment in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5. Again, number 6, in Zechariah 11 verse 12, Zechariah prophesied that Jesus will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And we see the fulfillment of that in Matthew 26 verse 15. Number seven prophecy. Again, Zechariah. He prophesied that the silver that will be used to betray Jesus will be used to buy a potter's field. Here we go, Matthew 27 verse 3, and verses 7 through to 10. 
Lastly, in what I'm showing you here, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi prophesied that he will have a forerunner announcing his coming. Can you believe that? Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. You want to tell me that this Bible is not real. And yet, a thousand years before Jesus came, God inspired in the hearts of men over a span of time to give us signposts of his arrival. What is the chance that these eight prophecies will be fulfilled in the life of one individual? The law of compound probability tells us that the chance is one in ten to the 20th power. <laughs> let, 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 that just, let me say that one more time. The chances of anyone prophesying a thousand years before the time, eight times about a certain individual, and for it to come to pass, in the law of compound probability, we are told that the chance is one in ten to the 28th power. Do you know what that means? That means when you take one and then you put zeros behind a one, you put one and 28 zeros. If you're a statistics, statistics guy or a mathematician, maybe you can figure it out. I can't. One in 10 to the 20th power. That's the chance. Now, let, let me break that down to you. Let me make it real so that you can really fully appreciate what that means. In other words, if you are to cover the entire state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars, I used to collect them. I go to the bank and get those. I, I love the silver dollars. It's just, it's just, there was just something unique about them. I, I, I collected them, yeah. So if you were to go to the state of Texas and plant silver dollars all across the state, two feet deep, of which on one of those silver dollars you have marked with the red ink. And you tell your friends, say, Derek, walk all through Texas, from Corpus Christi to Austin to Houston to Dallas to the Panhandle to the Gulf. Walk everywhere to, from the east to the west, to the north to the south, and choose one silver dollar. The probability that he will choose the one that is marked in red is one in 10 to the 20th power. That's what we're talking about. Now, the amazing thing is, the scripture did not just give us eight prophecies concerning Jesus. There are 300. I just showed you eight. There are 300 prophetic signposts to predict and to help us to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is coming to the earth, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. The probability of one individual perfectly fulfilling all 300 prophecies is beyond my ability to illustrate. What am I saying to us? Although men may die, the word of God lives. 
Although our experiences may fade, the word endures forever. Although the world in which we live, even this United States, may get dark, the word shines brighter than ever. Hallelujah. The Bible is God's inspired word to humanity. It is the final authority in all matters of doctrine and faith. Now, let me just close now. Let me close. I want to close by saying to us, if we are to live righteousness out in the marketplace, at school, at home, wherever we are found, if we are going to live this out, number one, you must be born again. I'm not going to touch that anymore because I've addressed that a few times already. Number two, you have to embrace the culture of the kingdom. This is really where we are missing it big time. Please give me Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 in a message translation. We must embrace the culture of the kingdom. I did a teaching years ago where I addressed four essentials about the kingdom. I talked about the language of the kingdom. I talked about the attitude of the kingdom. I talked about the operating system of the kingdom. And then, of course, I talked about the culture of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has a culture. And that culture is nothing but love. Love. Me and you, all of us, must embrace the culture of the kingdom of God. God thrives and runs on love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Nothing else works. Only love. God's agape. Look at what Romans 12 says in a message translation. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Did you hear that? Don't just jump up because you have a sense, you have a brain, and just start doing things. No, place it before God. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Go on. Verse 2. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. That is what is happening. We are not thinking God any longer. We are thinking CNN, it must be right. We are thinking Fox News, it must be right. I heard Don Lemon said the other night that Jesus was not perfect in his athlete ministry. This man said that on the news. Don Lemon of CNN. He said, Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was not a perfect man. Dong! Hebrews 4, 15 tells us that Jesus was tested in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us God made him to be seen. Who knew no sin? But unfortunately, the people that's listening to the gospel are according to Don Lemon. They will hear that and run with it and say, Jesus was not perfect. 
If he was not perfect, we are a man and woman most miserable because we will not be saved. Please back. Don't leave the scripture for me, please. Romans 12 verse 2. Message translation. I just took a Selah moment. <laughs> okay. So you see what it says? Don't become well adjusted to your culture. That you fit into it without even thinking. I, I, said, I said everything I said before that to highlight that phrase. People hear what Don Lemon says, they say, oh yeah, okay, Jesus was not perfect. So yeah, I'm not, there's not. We need to start thinking scriptures. Even if I say it, and I cannot back it up with the word of God, don't believe it. Absolutely, don't believe it if I cannot give you scripture for it. You and I need to be like the Berean Christians who after having heard, went back to their own homes and the Bible says they searched the scriptures to see if these things be so. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Do you see that? Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down into its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. A quick check for you, my friend, whoever you are. If you are constantly agreeing with the culture around you, you need to check your righteousness. If you are constantly agreeing with the prevailing culture, then you need a righteousness check. Simple. Let me move on. So embrace the culture of the kingdom of God, which is love. Secondly, well, thirdly, first I said being born again. Number two, embrace the culture of the kingdom. Number three, and I'm going to address these two, three messages from now. Everything we're talking about begins at home. It begins at home. I won't address that now. I'll address that in two, three messages from now. Number four, you must be motivated by divine vision. God, this is lacking today. We don't hear enough messages about heaven. So we're quick to think or we are lured into a sense of complacency, thinking that living here in the United States or wherever you are, Australia, England, Nigeria, Ghana, Cameroon, Congo, you are thinking that this life that you have now is the only life. Wrong! You and I must be motivated by divine vision. Romans 14.10 tells us, give it, for me. give it to me please, Romans 14 verse 10. I don't want to misquote it. So, give it to me. Nah, thank you. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every man and woman, that's one appointment you will not miss. And when you stand at this judgment seat, no one is going to ask you, did you match? Did you protest? That will not count. The only thing I will count is what did you do with what God gave you? How faithful were you with the resources I've given you? Did you use it to serve your own sentiments? 
Or did you use it to pursue God's purpose in the earth? Divine vision. Living today with a mental picture of tomorrow. Give me 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. See, talking about the same thing. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. No one will miss that appointment. And many of you, when you go to work, you are late. You go for so your flight, you miss it, you are late. Uh, you, uh, some of us, uh, uh, we go to doctor's appointment, we are late. This one, you will not be late. No one will be made late for this one. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? For what? It tells us that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is not talking about going to hell, heaven or hell. No, no. This judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. Christians. People that say, I'm a Christian. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm a born again believer. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. So we receive God's love by grace. We don't earn it. We don't work for it. By grace, it confers the blessings on us. However, God is a master steward. For each grace is given us, the day will come when you stand before him. Derek, what do you do with my grace? Good or bad, what do you do? So every day we live on this earth, we must be cognizant. We must constantly be thinking about that day. What do you want that day? What kind of commendation do you want from God? Because that day relates to another day, and I don't have time to get into that. This divine vision is in two parts. Number one, given an account for our life. Number two, you must understand that we die, we go to heaven, but we don't stay in heaven forever. We are coming back to the earth. <laughs> I, I, I don't have time to get into all of that now. We are coming back here to planet earth. It will be called the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. Many of us are struggling want to make it to heaven. And God in heaven is trying to make it to the earth. The earth is a final place. And what you do now will determine your role and your place in that time. You see many bishops right now with their bishop and your, their ring and their, their chain. Their, hey, bishop is coming. Ten bodyguards. In that new earth, they will not find a bicycle to ride. And people we don't think have done anything who's walking behind the scenes, following the will of God, living righteously, and we don't know their names. They are not on CNN. They are not on Fox News. We don't applaud them in church. We'll be surprised in the new earth. Because God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my Lord. We must be born again. We must embrace the culture of the kingdom. It begins at home, and we must be motivated by divine vision. Let me just close with this final closing. Permit me for two minutes. I read this article, actually just the other day. Please give it to me now, my, my PowerPoint, about Mahatma Gandhi. 
He was a controversial figure, a Hindu, but also controversial in some of the things he said. Nonetheless, he had a good perspective of some things that need to be happening to you and I. And you must understand that Dr. Martin Luther King in his movement actually went to India to spend some time with Mahatma Gandhi. I think, I think what I read said about something about three months. I'm not sure. I may be wrong on that. But he went and spent some good time to learn from this man. How he led the movement in India that finally, ultimately, sent the British away. And he became the father of India. Please watch what I'm about to show you. India today, if I'm not mistaken, it's about what? One billion people? Or one, one, one billion? One billion! That's B with a B. B. Billion! And this man is the father of the nation. Now, slide number one. This is what Gandhi said. I'll be a Christian if it were not for Christians. Christian if it were not for the Christians. Now, let me give you the context. This man read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was intrigued with Jesus of the Bible. He was impressed. Wow! This is for real? I want this Jesus of the Bible. True story. As a result, on a Sunday morning, he got up and went to a church in Calcutta, India. When he got to the church, the ushers looked at him and said, you are not a higher caste and you are not a white. Therefore, you are not welcome here. Not this Sunday, not any Sunday. You cannot come to church. Gandhi was about to become a Christian except for the segregation in the church. Until this day, Sunday mornings are the most segregated times till today. How are we going to be a witness to the world around us? We all live in communities that's diverse. You have blacks, whites, Hispanics, every man, every woman from tribe, people, and tongue, and nation are living in our communities, but on Sunday morning, we split up. The Hispanics go to Hispanic church. The blacks go to the black church. The whites go to white churches. The brown, whoever you are, they go to different churches. And we say we honor the same God. And we say we are brothers and sisters praying the same God. We have no idea what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17 when he talks about the unity of the faith. We have no idea. We will deal with that later on. But that one incident turned that man away. Give me slide, next slide. This is what Gandhi said. A virtue achieves its potential only in its application. Being the salt of the earth, being the light of the world, 
It only achieves the potential when we apply it. When it's not just a theory. When it's just not something I crammed in the Bible. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, he's not saying you cram a verse and because you've crammed it, you know, no, no, no. What he's saying is that when you do the things I've told you, when you practice the message I've given you, then you will come into the knowledge of that message. I can tell you all day long that, when you, that you, you can get in the pool and swim. And as you get there, you get wet. If you're still staying outside of the pool, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But when you get in that pool and you get wet and you gargle some chlorine, uh -huh, you know. You know about swimming. A virtual achieves its purpose only in its application. And it ceases, this is what really got me, it ceases to have any use if it serves no purpose in daily life. This is our problem. Am I salt every day? Am I light every day? Or am I only salt when I come to church? Am I only salt or light when I'm in church? We don't need light in the church. We need it in the dark. So, so what, what I'm seeing from what this man is saying and from what Jesus said, our righteousness has to be with intentionality. I have to wake up in the morning and say, intentionally today, I'm going to be light. Intentionally today, I'm going to be salt. It cannot just be something that's out there in the scripture somewhere, uh, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6. Yeah, the Bible said it. No, no, no. You need to wake up and pray, God, I thank you. I'm a salt and light of the earth. Help me to manifest salt and light. Today, it has to be with intention. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 4, I must needs go through Samaria. Intention. He could have gone somewhere else, but he said, I must needs go through Samaria. There has to be an intention. This is where we're missing it. We should not be waiting for the news media to activate us. We should not be waiting for things to happen and then we react. No. We should be responding to God by being salt and light and let the world catch up with us. But we are constantly playing catch up because we have not been awakened to who we are. And it's time for an awakening. Last slide, and I'll close with this. Look at what it says. Be the change you want to see in the world. Can you get any, any clearer than that? We want change, we want change, we want change. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yes. We want change. Yes. But don't point, don't kick the can to the next person. Don't kick it to your neighbor. Don't kick it to the congressman. Don't kick it to the senator. Don't kick it to the president. You, you be the change you want to see. And we be that change by intentionally being sought and light every day. In fact, let me, let me take that back. Every moment, that person in the drugstore, that person at the grocery store, that person sitting next to you in the cubicle, that person that makes the phone call you just got, no matter how irritating they are, when you intentionally say, I'm going to be solved, that means you're going to affect that individual. You are intentionally saying, God, I'm calling upon you 
to affect this man, this woman, by something I say or do to your honor and for your glory. Be the change you want to see in the world. So, Father, we want to thank you for our time this morning. We bless your name, Lord God, for your grace. We are challenged by your word. And we thank you that we stand yielding to the power of your spirit to not just talk change, but to accept the responsibility to be the change we desire. Thank you, Lord God, that your righteousness lives in us and through us. That we bring forth, according to your word, the fruits of righteousness, godly character, worship that comes out of your lips, and the results of ministry based on those we touch for you and your goodness and your glory. Thank you that we're empowered today, this week, no, in fact, today and in days to come, to be the change that we desire in our world. We are no longer going to kick the can and point the finger to this one or that one, but we accept the responsibility that you've given us the power, the enablement to be a catalyst, a change agent. And so as we go to work tomorrow, as we go to the groceries tomorrow, as we go to our businesses tomorrow, whatever we do going forward, we accept that responsibility. We are your change agents. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are working in us, through us, to confirm your word with signs following. We thank you, Lord. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.